today from the global lane. Democracy on hold as the military ceases control in Sudan. Coup against Islamic extremism? It's very much possible that the military made the move to ensure that Muslim Brotherhood will not be able to have another opportunity to come back into the region. Rising inflation and supply chain shortages. Bad news election bellwether for Biden and the Democrats. When people go to vote, they're going to vote knowing what's in their pockets or what's not in their pocket. A day of prayer for the persecuted church and some lessons from Sabina Wormbrand. I can't protect you from the wrath of God. And domestic terrorists? Loudoun County parents stand against rape. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Making to the streets, protesters in Sudan are demonstrating their displeasure with the military, which launched a coup this week, putting the transition to civilian rule on hold. Military ruler General Abdel Fattah Burhan says the army seized control because of a political deadlock in the country. Well, here to provide more insights on what is happening in Sudan and why we should be concerned is Near East Center for a Strategic Engagement CEO, Sargis Sangari. Sargis, you recently returned from a fact-finding trip to the region. What do you make of this? Why did this happen? It's good to be here, Gary. We had an inkling and understanding that maybe the multi would move against the current transitional government. And the reason being, because when I was in the South Sudan, we saw that there was a linkage with at least two individuals in the South Sudanese government that were advising the civilian leadership within this so-called transitional government. And we saw possible ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think in this particular case, it's very much possible that the military made the move to ensure that Muslim Brotherhood will not be able to have another opportunity to come back into the region. Because if it did that, then it would destabilize that entire area from uh, Egypt all the way down to uh, Kenya, to Uganda and Tanzania and so and so. Well, I understand that the military there in Sudan is very close to the Egyptian military and they both oppose this uh, GERD, uh, the, the big dam that uh, Ethiopia is planning. Well, they do, but I think that's more of a political piece. When you look at the technical aspect of it, it's not that much of an issue. But, of course, the countries will use uh, the dam as a piece. Uh, now, the current military in Sudan uh, has still uh, stated that they're still committed to elections in 2023, which would now put the Sudan elections on the same timeline technically with the South Sudanese uh, elections. And if you listen to what is coming out from the major multi-powers are very tied to each other, in this case, Sudan, Egypt, Kenya, Uganda, and all the other powers within the uh, region, you're not seeing too much of a pushback as far as the coup is concerned. I think the worry that the Sudanese had, the Sudanese multi, was that uh, it would be possible that what Egypt went through under Obama administration where the Muslim Brotherhoods came to power, that they were starting to feel that they were being squeezed to the same level under the current Biden administration, who has some of the same old advisors that were under Obama. And Jeff Feltman, who was a special envoy for the U.S., was there the day before the coup took place. So you can kind of look at what the possibility of how badly U.S. foreign policy is somewhat feckless in the region. Do you think our officials even knew that the Muslim Brotherhood was active there? 
I don't think they knew, to be honest, and I think they were caught off guard. I mean, you heard the portals themselves said he, it was a surprise for him as to what happened within the region. Some advisor had told him that uh, the fact that uh, it was the Sudanese military that actually conducted a raid while I was there on the ground in Kenya against an ISIS cell and they lost 10 of their officers showed that uh, ISIS and the Muslim Brotherhood was very active within the borders of Sudan. The worry is that this would have had also destabilizing effects on South Sudan. Even the South Sudanese military recently has pushed back on Secure's ability to possibly control them by saying that we're not going to accept payments anymore because we want to see a change in the in the military of South Sudan, or I should say in the future of South Sudan. So the militaries in the region from Egypt to Sudan and South Sudan somewhat are linked together uh, on the same pathway of wanting to make sure that you get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood within the region. Well, Egypt knows that very well, and we've seen the effect of that when the Brotherhood came into power there in Egypt and uh, really persecuted the Christians there. So why should yes. our viewers, people here in the USA and around the world, be concerned about this? Concerned about it because, like I said, it's a feckless uh, ability of the U.S. to be able to affect foreign policy when you have your uh, special envoy um, the day after he leaves for a coup to take place and you have the POTUS in the U.S. not knowing what's happening. It's as equivalent as when we had our CIA chief meet with the Taliban and uh, within 72 hours an attack had taken place against U.S. forces, which was the last final suicide attack against our forces before we left Afghanistan. I think we are losing our footprint within the region. I think if anybody really had a very good understanding of the region is the Israelis, because at the same time, the transitional government was looking forward to being part of the Abrams Accord. And I think when you hear nothing really seriously coming out against this particular coup from the Israelis, it means that they probably understood what was happening on the ground and U.S. had no clue. And quickly, uh, how should we respond then, the United States at this point? Well, the issue is you cannot uh, support a coup, but at the same time, you have to understand why the coup took place. You, all we could do is ensure that we hold the current military powers in Sudan to their word that there will be elections in 2023 and help them and help the regional powers to finally get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS that is operating out of Horn of Africa. Because if they're operational, then as it was before the 2019 coup, where well, you saw Bashir out, Iran even was able to use Bashir to move what it wanted within the region. We need to get rid of the ability for these terror operating networks and state to be functioning and have a foothold and roots in Horn of Africa. Okay, Sargas Ngari, CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Thank you, Sargas, for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. God bless. Bellwether for 2022. Voters in more than half of the states here in the USA will be going to the polls November 2nd. Most will be participating in local elections, but in some states like Virginia and New Jersey, voters will be making choices for statewide offices. Here to discuss how turnout and various issues may affect the outcome of statewide races is Kim Klasik. Ms. Klasik is a former congressional candidate from Baltimore and the co-founder of the new political action committee Red Renaissance. Kim, it's a pleasure to talk with you. So I know you're spending time working to get conservatives elected in the upcoming races. Is this a referendum on Joe Biden and his agenda or are state voters mostly interested in local issues? 
Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I believe in Virginia, as we saw over the past, I think, few months now since the COVID pandemic lockdowns, there's been a lot of parents that have been really involved in their children's education. And if you look at counties like Loudoun County, uh, Virginia, you can see where parents are really stepping up and wanting to do more about getting critical race theory and other curriculum items that Virginia has on the agenda out of the children's schools. Um, so to do that, I think they're paying a lot more attention to the school board elections. And then, of course, uh, the big race, the gubernatorial race in Virginia is huge. And as you can see, it's, it's dead heat right now, I think 46 percent on both sides. And I think that speaks to what is going on on the national level. Uh, with President Biden and just some of the mistakes I think he's made in the few the last few months. Uh, and then again, also the local issues. So I think there are a lot of people that are willing to, you know, vote differently this time around in Virginia, especially. I sense that the uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidates in New Jersey and Virginia are a bit worried about black voter support and turnout. Former President Barack Obama recently rallied for Governor Phil Murphy in New Jersey and Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, hoping to generate some enthusiasm among black voters. Do you think that will work? What are you hearing from black voters on the ground in those two states? Well, it's interesting because in Virginia and New Jersey, we have a lot of candidates with our PAC Red Renaissance. And so from the congressional level, state delegate seats, state senator seats, and then all the way down to school board. Um, but as far as a lot of the people in the black community in the predominantly black areas, people are tired of the crime and violence and the poor education. And so, like I said, with that COVID lockdown, a lot of kids had to stay home and they had to learn online for about a year. And I think a lot of parents were very frustrated. Uh, they then realized that kids aren't being taught, you know, reading, writing, and basic math anymore. There's a lot of, I guess, social um, you know, issues that they're being taught when it comes to the LGBTQ community and other things that I think parents want to have those conversations with their kids on their own time. Um, so I think a lot of people are really starting to see that the Democrat Party, for some reason, is really pushing this progressive agenda, and uh, a lot of us are not enthused about it. And Kim, opposition to Donald Trump motivated many Democrats to vote last November, but he's not on the ballot this time. At least here in Virginia, Democrats are running ads linking their opponents to Trump and the January 6th riot. How effective do you think that strategy is? Well, I know for uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, I believe, you know, running for governor in Virginia, uh, President Trump has endorsed him. So, yes, they're trying to tie Trump to him as much as possible uh, because there were a lot of voters that weren't pleased, I guess, with Trump's personality and some of the things that he was doing uh, when it came to tweeting or, you know, just trying to be transparent in his own way. Um, and so I think, though, that is going to, um, you know, maybe make some disruption a little bit, but not quite because, as, they, as you said, He's not on the ballot, right? So people aren't going to see President Trump on the ballot. They're looking again at the local issues. Now that we see gas prices are going up, you're starting to see stores, the shelves are emptying. We don't know what's going to happen as far as the supply chain issues, especially with the holidays coming up. And I think when people go to vote, they're going to vote knowing what's in their pocket or what's not in their pocket as far as, you know, all the prices and the inflation that we see across the country. Yeah, pocketbook issues uh, this time around. It seems that school board policies, again, as you had mentioned, critical race theory, also gender issues, granting biological males access to female bathrooms, especially in Loudoun County. Uh, as you mentioned, that's a hot topic in the Virginia governor's race. So what role do you expect uh, that they, that may play in deciding a winner in that race? And it's a race that's now neck and neck, as you had mentioned. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, gubernatorial candidate uh, Glenn Youngkin is doing a great job showing that uh, his opponent has been against a lot of the parents being involved in their children's education. And as we know, that's what moms, most moms and most dads really want is that involvement. That's how kids are successful in school, when you see more parent involvement. Um, so when he said that on many occasions, now, you know, Youngkin's team is running a video showing uh, his opponent saying it over and over again. I think a lot of people are now saying, wow, this might not be the candidate for me. Uh, because, again, we want to be involved in our children's education. That's the key to success. Um, and I don't think any parents are going to back down from that. Okay, I know you'll be keeping a close eye on Virginia and New Jersey, especially the gubernatorial race there. Uh, election bellwethers for 2022. Kim Klasik of Red Renaissance PAC. Thank you, Kim, for sharing your time and insights, insights with us from Baltimore. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Pray for us. Each year on the first Sunday of November, millions of Christians around the world unite in prayer for the persecuted church. The Voice of the Martyrs is among mission groups and ministries reminding us to participate this year on Sunday, November 7th, but also to pray every day for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Author and VOM radio host Todd Nettleton joins us with more. Todd, it's always good to talk with you, so I want to discuss VOM's new film, Sabina, in a moment. But first, why do we need one day each November, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, to pray for persecuted Christians? Well, thanks, Gary. It's always good to talk to you as well. I, I think there's two reasons. I think one is the scriptural call. Uh, you know, as Hebrews 13:3 says, remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. What would you want people to do if you were in prison? You'd want to know that they're praying for you. The second reason, though, is because it's what our persecuted brothers and sisters ask us to do. When we go and we meet with them and we say, hey, how can American Christians help you? the first thing they say is pray for us. So it is, this day, International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians, is a direct response to their number one request. So, Todd, should we pray for the persecution against followers of Christ to stop? How should we pray? You know, I, I think it's easy to pray for it to stop, but that's not their prayer. Their prayer is, Lord, help us to be faithful in spite of the suffering, in spite of the persecution. So uh, I think that's an important thing for us to pray with them, that God will encourage them and allow them to remain faithful. The other thing that I encourage people to pray for is pray that they will know they're being prayed for, that the Holy Spirit will let them know they're not forgotten, they're not alone. That's one of the lies that the enemy uses against persecuted Christians but they're not forgotten. And I pray that God, as we pray for them, that God will let them know they're being prayed for, they're being remembered, even right at that moment. And, and I know those you talk to after their prison experience always say they felt the prayers, they made a big difference. Now, I know this year on November 8th through the 10th, the Voice of the Martyrs is holding a Fathom event in select theaters around the country, and it's the premiere of your new film, Sabina. I think it was about four years ago when VOM released the film Tortured for Christ, and that was Richard Wormbrand's story. Why now the film Sabina? Well, as you mentioned, Torture for Christ, the movie, tells the story of the Wormbrands under the communists in Romania. But there's a lot of the story that that first film didn't tell. Part of it was 
How did these two people, very successful, very intelligent people, become believers in Christ? They were both born into Jewish families. This film shares the story of how they came to know Christ, how they came to know each other, uh, and then how they suffered, how they were willing, even in the early years of their faith, when Romania was controlled by the Nazis, how Richard and Sabina suffered even under the Nazis before the communist takeover and before the stories that, that maybe became more well-known in Tortured for Christ. Okay, Todd, let's look at a quick clip. Although Sabina Wormbrand was a Christian, she, as you mentioned, was also an ethnic Jew. Her Jewish family members were killed by the Nazis, yet she helps the Nazis. And in this clip, a Nazi soldier reminds Sabina that the Russians will kill her if they discover that she's helping the Germans. I will protect you from the Russians. I can't protect you from the wrath of God. Why? Why would you risk your life for a German soldier? Todd, I know this would shock many people that Sabina Wormbrand actually protected Nazi soldiers from the Russians, even though they killed her family members. So why did she do that, Todd? You know, Sabina had experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ, and it so transformed her that she could show love to her enemies. She could show love to the very people that killed her family. It is, it is one of the most amazing displays of the gospel. And we still see this today in hostile and restricted nations where our persecuted brothers and sisters are able to forgive their persecutors. They're able to love their persecutors. And it's, it is such a display, it is such a proof of the reality of the gospel that we often see persecutors impacted and even come to follow Christ through that testimony and through that example. And, and that is quite remarkable, isn't it? Because we know that Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. And I know, as you mentioned, many persecuted Christians that VOM helps around the world face a similar choice. They choose love over hate. Some even share Christ with their captors while in prison. Now, Richard and Sabina Wormbrand did exactly that while in communist prisons in Romania. So I know it would seem hard for us to do, but does that mean that they had stronger faith than maybe we have or what? You know, they had access to the same Holy Spirit power that we have access to. And so I think, you know, one of the things as we hear stories of persecuted Christians, it's easy to say, well, you know, they, they have a Superman faith and I just have normal man faith. I could never be like them. I could never do that. Uh, but the reality, and I think if, if Richard and Sabina were still alive, what they would say is, no, God empowered us to do that. It wasn't our power. It wasn't our strength. It was God working through us. And, and we were just open to let him do that. That's a choice we have too. Maybe not facing persecution, but all of us face trials. All of us face challenges. And we can choose, just as Richard and Sabina did, to love those who are maybe working against us. Maybe we don't like them. Maybe they irritate us. We can choose to love and forgive, just as Sabina did. Okay, the new film is Sabina. Looks amazing, Todd. Where and when can people see it? SabinaMovie.com is the website. You can buy tickets now, as you mentioned, November 8, 9, and 10. It is in more than 800 theaters around the country, so there's probably one close to everyone who's watching right now. Okay, Todd Nettleton, author and VOM radio host. Thank you, Todd, for being with us. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Have a good day, Gary. Speaking out.
Parents and students are standing up to insane school board decisions. In Loudoun County, Virginia, students at Broad Run High School walked out of their classrooms this week, demanding a safer learning environment. They chanted, Loudoun County protects rapists, shortly after one of their classmates was found guilty of sex crimes committed against a 15-year-old girl. The boy had apparently entered a Stonebridge High School bathroom wearing a skirt a consequence of the school district's pro-transgender policy for school bathrooms and locker rooms. The AT40 policy allows students to, quote, use the facility that corresponds to their gender identity. In this case, while the skirt-wearing boy appeared as a girl that day, his actions were that of a male rapist. And that's exactly what many sensible adults have warned against, the creation of unsafe restroom and locker room facilities in the schools. The Loudoun County School Board and the superintendent are accused of covering up the boy's sexual crimes. They removed him from Stonebridge and then placed him in Broad Run High School, where he allegedly committed another rape. Now parents are demanding that the superintendent and school board resign. Folks, this guilty verdict exposes the unwarranted claims of the U.S. Department of Justice and National Association of School Boards, equating outspoken parents to domestic terrorists. This video was used as the catalyst for their leftist political agenda. It shows the school board meeting arrest of Scott Smith. He's the father of the girl who was sexually assaulted last May. Now, Smith says the NASB owes him an apology. Appearing recently on Fox News, Smith expressed a concern for his reputation and for other parents who speak out at school board meetings. Our government is going to weaponize themselves against parents, and, and, and they're using my video across the nation to spread fear? That's wrong. I'm not a bully. I'm not a racist. I love everyone. I love this country. The NASB apologized to its members, but not to Smith and other parents. Displeased with the NASB, three state school boards have now left the National Association. Still, the attitude remains, how dare parents challenge those who educate their children? The problem is, students aren't being educated. They're either getting raped physically or intellectually. Folks, parents have a responsibility and a right to peacefully stand up and demand accountability and godliness. Evil triumphed in those Loudoun County bathrooms because not enough good people stood up against a misguided policy. Let's not forget the old saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.